Hey there. Welcome back to another season of Novel Conversations. Before we start the show, I wanted to catch up with our listeners on the latest events and happenings since our last season. We're excited to announce that the Front Porch People, longtime home of Novel Conversations, is moving to Evergreen Podcast. It's the same great team and great content, but with a brand new name. All of these great titles, including Novel Conversations, will continue on Evergreen as Front Porch Classics. So please visit evergreenpodcast.com where you can hear all of season six and episodes from past seasons. And while you're there, check out more Evergreen shows like Pro Book Nerds, Burn the Boats, Wake Up Call, Riffs on Riffs, and, well, I can go on, but it's a network worth checking out with tons of great storytelling and engaging shows. All right, up next, Novel Conversations. I'm Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. For each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This week I'll be having a conversation about the novel The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. And I'm joined by our Novel Conversations readers, Elizabeth Flood and Phil Setnick. Elizabeth, Phil, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Frank. And now, on to our show. Before I start our conversation, let me tell you a little bit about The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Published in 1876, Tom Sawyer was Mark Twain's first novel. And though often dismissed as a boy's tale about boys and for boys, especially when compared to Mark Twain's masterpiece, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, After 140 years, Tom Sawyer remains his best-known and most widely read book. The Adventures of Tom Sawyer is the story of a young boy, still firmly rooted in childhood, but struggling with the passage to adulthood, with all the trials and failings that that entails. The story of Tom's childhood and his struggle to grow up make up the bulk of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So, Elizabeth, is this the first time you've read The Adventures of Tom Sawyer? Uh, I read it when I was in middle school. Phil, how about you? Is this the first time you read the book? I think I was about Tom's age the first time I read it. (laughs) All right, very good. All right, Phil, Elizabeth, let's get into our novel. Phil, I'll start with you. Our novel today is The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, and it starts right off with Tom Sawyer in an adventure. Tom plays hooky to go to the swimming hole with Joe Harper and Polly, who he lives with. Her measure to safeguard against this is that she sews his collar together. Right. Aunt Polly is going to sew the collar closed so he can't remove his shirt and go swimming. Tom, though, has a plan to skirt this by bringing his own thread to re-sew the collar. That's a pretty good plan. Or so he thinks. Yeah, he thought he had it covered, too. He brought both black thread and white thread, but unfortunately, he doesn't follow details completely. He sews the wrong collar back into his collar. (laughs) And this really does tell us a lot about Tom Sawyer within just a few pages. He's a rascal. He plays hooky, but he's not a dummy. Yeah, he's smart. And he's not afraid of getting caught. He looks her in the eye and lies to her straight away because he believes so deeply in his own conventions for tricking her. And how does he get found out? You said he has the wrong color thread, but Aunt Polly doesn't notice that. It was Sid who gave him up, isn't it? Sid? Who's Sid? Sid is Tom's half-brother. He's always by Aunt Polly's side and a little suck-up. Well, he's a pain in the neck to Tom, that's for sure. But he definitely plays the little brother role. And it's Sid who says, but wait, it's not the right color. So it's Sid who gets him in trouble here. And our Tom, though, he's gone. He's gone before Aunt Polly can even whirl around and check the color. 
Yeah, he's fast. He does that a few times in this book. And right from there, he runs off to another adventure. He doesn't go off and sulk or try to salve his conscience. He's off to confront a new boy in town. Right. Tom sees a boy who's well-dressed, and he doesn't like him for that. And right away, he wants to fight with him. Right, and the quote is, This boy was well-dressed. Well-dressed on a weekday? This was simply astounding. His cap was a dainty thing, and so were his pantaloons. Tom has to deal with this kid, and he does deal with him. They have a standoff. Right. They spend the next chapter threatening the fight. Yeah. If you cross this line, I'll beat you. If you enter this circle, I'll double dare you. It goes back and forth for pages and pages. And finally, Tom has no choice but to punch the kid. (laughs) He really chases him home, and he comes home late, and he's back in trouble again. Oh, good old Tom. Now, this is where, when I was a kid, I was like, boring. I don't want a book about just boys thinking they're so tough. Now, do you understand this a little bit more? It makes so much more sense now. Each one was terrified of the other. Tom didn't like him because he was better dressed. And we get a glimpse into Tom's strong side and his fragile side at the same time. And now the novel immediately moves into what is perhaps one of the most famous scenes in all of Mark Twain's novels, the whitewashing of the picket fence. This is going to be his punishment. For skipping school and swimming and for coming home so late. It's a beautiful day and he has to whitewash the fence. It's a Saturday, so everybody's out. Everybody's ready to play, and he can't. There's no way to get around this. So his only option is to try and convince the other boys in his neighborhood to be a part of this. And this is where you can't help but respect Tom. He's so clever here. He uses his great powers of negotiation and reverse psychology against these kids. What a lucky boy I am. How often does a kid get to paint a fence like this? And he stands back and examines his work, adds a few brush strokes here, a few brush strokes there. It's wonderful detailed work. Because he knows he has an audience. He has an audience, and that's what he lives for through this whole book. All his adventures are so much more wonderful for him if he can put a twist on it and gain an audience. A little girl, his friends, the whole town. He gets all these kids and they come over and pay him to do the work themselves. And he got some really cool things as payment. Yeah, he got an apple core. (laughs) I'm sure those are delicious. He got marbles. Twelve marbles. Ah, a piece of blue bottle glass. Spool cannon, which I don't know exactly what a spool cannon is. I'll show you mine sometime. (laughs) All right. A key that wouldn't unlock anything, a fragment of chalk, a glass stopper, a tin soldier, tadpole, six firecrackers, a kitten with only one eye. (laughs) Excellent. A brass doorknob, a dog collar, but no dog, handle of a knife, four pieces of orange peel, and a dilapidated old window sash. He also had one other pretty interesting thing, right? A dead cat on a string to swing it over your head. Yeah, I remember thinking, oh, but what if he found something to unlock with this key? And that is the theme running through this book. Yes, it is. Uh, In fact, later on, they go looking for any key they can find. Right. Yeah, they're always on the hunt for the treasure. So, Phil, Elizabeth, Tom turns his Saturday into quite an adventure. But now comes Sunday. He has to go to church, and he has to get dressed up. How does Tom make out in church? Well, he has to learn five verses. This is something they do every week when they have to go to their Sunday school. They each have to come in every Sunday having memorized a few verses from the Bible. It's another detailed task that Tom is not very good at. Mary helps him with them. She gets him dressed, and she tries to work on his verses with him, but he's just not getting it. Remind me again who Mary is? Uh, Mary is his cousin. I've got a great line here from Mark Twain, how he introduces Mary to us. I wrote underneath it, great writing. 
When his cousin Mary danced in, all alive with the joy of seeing home again after an age-long visit of one week to the country, he got up and moved in clouds and darkness out one door as she brought song and sunshine in at the other. That's a great description of Mary and some really nice writing. It is great writing, and it also shows us Tom's emotional range was so dramatic. And that's sort of how his Saturday into Sunday went. His Saturday was a day in the sun, playing with his friends, tricking them, gaining his wealth. But Sunday was going to be a day in the clouds. But he's got a plan for Sunday school as well. He's got a plan. He spends everything he earned on Saturday on his way into this Sunday school service. Yeah. He trades all of his wealth for these tickets that whenever you memorize a verse successfully, you get a ticket. And Tom basically buys all of these tickets from the other boys. We don't know why Tom wants these tickets. You get a blue ticket for 10 verses, and then once you have 10 blue tickets, you get one red ticket. And then 10 red tickets get you one yellow ticket. And I believe for 10 yellow tickets, they gave you a very plain bound Bible worth 40 cents, I think Mark Twain tells us. So Tom starts to collect these tickets, but what does Tom want with a Bible? Well, he wants an audience. Here's the new girl coming to the Sunday school. Let's talk about the new girl. Who's the new girl? So this new girl is Becky Thatcher, Tom's new love. He's seen her, fallen for her pretty fast, tried to show off in front of her house doing all his tricks. This is his best chance yet to really prove his worth to her. So he's going to spend all of his earnings from Saturday buying tickets so that he can make a grand show of trading in the tickets for the Bible. And he wants to make this grand show for Becky Thatcher. Correct. Who's there with her father, the judge, right? Judge Thatcher? Right. Very prestigious visitors. I think Mark Twain calls him the great Judge Thatcher, brother of their own lawyer. But Phil, it's not just Tom Sawyer who's showing off for the great Judge Thatcher, is it? No. The entire town shows off in front of this judge. In this passage in the book, the librarians showed off running hither and thither with his arms full of books and making a deal the splutter and fuss that insect authority delights in. The young lady teachers showed off bending sweetly over pupils that were lately being boxed, lifting pretty warning fingers at bad little boys and patting good ones lovingly. The young gentlemen teachers showed off with small scolding and other little displays of authority and fine attention and discipline. And most of the teachers of both sexes found business up at the library by the pulpit. And it was business that frequently had to be done over again two or three times with much seeming vexation. And when it comes to the superintendent of the Sunday school, he wants to show off by being able to give out one of these special Bibles in front of the great Judge Thatcher to one of his students. How does that work? That's the culmination of his teachings. His prized pupils, who have memorized all their verses, and he gradually collected all their tickets, can finally be rewarded by receiving a Bible. He asks, who is ready to receive their Bible today? And he's a little disappointed because he knows, as the quote says, he'd been around the star pupils inquiring who had enough yellow tickets, but as far as he could determine, there were not enough yellow tickets for a Bible. And then, when all hope was dead... Here comes our hero, Tom Sawyer. And what does Tom Sawyer do to show off? It says, quote, This was a thunderbolt out of a clear sky. Walters was not expecting an application from this source from the next 10 years, but there is no getting around it. Here were the certified checks. They were good for their face. End quote. So especially in front of the respective visitors, he has to cough up the Bible, and he knows that he can't question Tom. Tom wouldn't know scripture, but our visitor doesn't know that. So he's thrilled to meet the young star pupil, and Judge Thatcher can't help but ask Tom, who are your first two apostles? 
And poor Tom, all he can come up with is David and Goliath. Ouch. And you just feel his pain. (laughs) And Mark Twain says, let us draw the curtain of charity over the rest of this scene. But another great adventure for Tom Sawyer. This really has the purpose of introducing himself to his new love, Becky Thatcher. And he sure does get her attention right away. He does. And he's not afraid of anything. He's not afraid of being embarrassed in front of this whole congregation. Yeah, you get the sense that he's this irrepressible character. I would even say unstoppable. And an unstoppable romantic. This is all in the name of love. And adventure, which sometimes can be the same thing. All right. Well, after Sunday school, they all have to go to church. And that's a tough time for Tom Sawyer, isn't it? Tough time for any boy, I think. Very true. He has to sit still. Not allowed to catch any flies. He hates that. (laughs) So once Tom and everyone is in church, they sit and they listen to the minister drone on, quote, to an argument that was so prosy that many ahead by and by began to nod. And yet it was an argument that dealt in limitless fire and brimstone and thinned the predestined elect down to a company so small as to be hardly worth the saving. Phil, Elizabeth, do you get the feeling that Mark Twain had as much trouble sitting through a church service as Tom Sawyer does? Yeah, absolutely. Because this is obviously an aside by Twain. Yet it also reflects the actions and thoughts of Tom Sawyer in a way. I like Mark Twain's aside here about the church choir. They couldn't stop talking. Right, and the quote is, The choir always twittered and whispered all through service. There once was a church choir that was not ill-bred, but I've forgotten where it is now. It was a great many years ago, and I can scarcely remember anything about it. But I think it was in some foreign country. That made me laugh out loud. To me, that's timeless. And that's what makes a great book, right? It's timeless and timely. All right, Elizabeth, Phil, I want to talk about the first really big adventure that Tom goes on and actually goes on with a friend that we haven't met yet, Huckleberry Finn. Tell me a little bit about that meeting. He simply says, quote, Shortly, Tom came upon the juvenile pariah of the village, Huckleberry Finn, Son of the town drunkard, end quote. So we know right away what kind of a meeting this is. Huck is not in school. Tom's going to be late to school because he's going to hang out with this unseemly character. And the conversation they have really gives us the sense that these are two boys talking because they're talking about a dead cat. Right. Huck's got himself a dead cat, but he had to buy it, didn't he? Yeah. He bought it off a boy for a blue ticket and a bladder that he got at the slaughterhouse. How did Huckleberry Finn get a blue ticket? That's for Bible verses, isn't it? Right, the same way as Tom Sawyer did. You know, he says, I bought it off Ben Rogers two weeks ago for a hoops stick. And isn't that the village mother's biggest complaint about Huckleberry Finn? Not that he's vulgar and bad and lawless. The big problem is their children admired him and wanted to be like him. Yeah, he's like the Fonz. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and in a different day, he would have been wearing a leather jacket and riding a motorcycle. But what I'm really interested in right now is this dead cat that Huck's dragging around. Tom and Huck have a plan for this dead cat, don't they? This is what leads to our next adventure. Yep, the dead cat can be used for curing warts, which Huck has found out because Bob Tanner, this other boy in town, has tried it. But Tom's not really sure about the cat cure. He uses the stump water, rainwater cure for his warts. He says he took thousands of warts off his hands that way. Mm-hmm. He's so dramatic. All right, so what are they going to do with this cat? They've got a plan for this cat. Huck says, quote, Well, take your cat, get it in the graveyard about midnight, when somebody that was wicked has been buried, and when it's midnight, a devil will come, or maybe two or three, but you can't see them. You can only hear something like the wind, or maybe hear him talking when they're taking that fellow away. You heave your cat after him and say, Devil follow corpse, cat follow devil, warts follow cat, I'm done with you. That'll fetch all warts. End quote. Bonjour. 
This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. That's our first introduction to all these incantations and spells and charms that they really, really believe in. So they decide they're going to bury this cat at midnight in a graveyard. And that really leads to quite an interesting adventure. That kicks off the first of the really big adventures of Tom Sawyer. So they agree to meet at the graveyard at midnight. But Elizabeth, they're not in the graveyard alone, are they? Well, they're waiting for the devils to come and get the soul of a man who's just been buried. For a minute, they believe that they hear them coming. It turns out, in fact, to be a doctor who's paid some guys to dig up a fresh corpse for him. We can assume for him to be experimenting on the cadaver. We learn that it's Injun Joe and Muff Potter and Dr. Robinson. Poor Muff Potter is so drunk, and Huck knows that well because he's a friend of his father's. And Tom recognizes the voice of Injun Joe. Tom says... That murder and half-breed? I'd druther they were devils, a darn sight. What can they be up to? So Injun Joe's just a bad guy. We know that from the start. So Injun Joe and the drunk, Muff Potter, are digging up a body for the doctor, so Huck and Tom have no choice but to stay hidden. Right. Tom and Huck have to watch this. It ceases to be a game for them right here, doesn't it? Yeah, this is not about the cat anymore, because now they're witnessing some very big grown-up adventure. This is scary. This is grave robbing. This is murder. Murder? Who gets murdered? Our doctor. Injun Joe decides that the money he was paid up to dig up this grave is not enough. He wants more. The doctor objects. Our drunk man falls down. Injun Joe can kill the doctor, put the knife in the drunk man's hand, so when he wakes up, he says, I can't believe it. I was so drunk, I killed the doctor. And all this was witnessed by Tom and Huck from their hiding? What did they do with this information? Of course, they have to make a pact and seal it in blood. What else would blood brothers do? Of course, yes. And the language is fantastic. Quote, Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer swear they will keep mum about this, and they wish they may drop down dead in their tracks if they ever tell and rot. End quote. And they swear to take this secret to their graves. And Phil, what's the consequences of this murder once it's discovered? Well, Injun Joe points the finger at Muff Potter. He's then thrown into jail. Now, Tom, he has a conscience about this, right? It bothers him. This is one of our first glimpses, I think, into Tom's more grown-up feelings. This weighs heavy on Tom. And he's not able to sleep or really eat that much for going on a week. And he's pitching around and talking in his sleep. Yeah, let me just get you there on the talking in his sleep part. Sid tells him that he's been saying strange things about blood and murders. So, of course, Tom doesn't want to reveal the secret. So Tom has a neat little way of preventing himself from sleep-talking. How does he do that? He ties his face closed. (laughs) That's right. He pretends he has a toothache and literally ties his mouth shut. Of course, Sid wants to hear what's going on. He sneaks over and unties his face. I actually kind of like that. It showed us a side of Sid that we hadn't gotten up to this point. He's been the goody-good guy, right? The goody-good kid. He's actually got a little bit of smarts to him as well. Well, sure. And especially if he can catch Tom doing something wrong. Absolutely. That's his motivation. So Tom's conscience does bother him. Tom tries to make some amends, doesn't he? Yeah. So Tom begins to take Muff Potter, I'd say, small comforts via the jail window. 
But eventually, as the days pass, Tom's mind seems to move on. His conscience doesn't bother him as much. And actually, right at the beginning of our chapter 12, we find out that Tom has new worries. Right. Becky Thatcher hasn't been showing up to school, so this worries Tom. Well, he misses her. He's distressed. Yeah. He says the charm of life was gone. (laughs) There was nothing but dreariness. He's so dramatic. (laughs) And so, in order to bring some excitement back into his life, he concocts another grand adventure. And his partners in this are Joe Harper and Huckleberry Finn, who agree to join him in being pirates. And this scheme entails what, Phil? This scheme entails them getting onto a raft and going to an island in the river. Some island three, four, five miles downstream from their little town of St. Petersburg. Starts out great, though, doesn't it? They've brought enough food with them for a few days. They actually have a pretty good time. They have a great time. They do start to get homesick. Yep, which none of them will admit to the other. But they're doing a pretty good job out there. I mean, they're taking care of themselves. They're having fun in the sun, fun in the water. They survived a terrible rainstorm that may have been a hurricane. But as you said, they do become a little bit homesick. And Tom decides to try to alleviate some of this homesickness. He does. Not for the sake of alleviating homesickness. I think for the purpose to continue their adventure and to continue convincing his friends to stay. He decides to go home and get some information. And he gets some very amazing information. He discovers they're going to have a funeral for them. Right, the town thinks these guys have drowned. But he also makes a stop at home, doesn't he? He does. This is where he overhears the conversation of his grieving aunt. His original intention was, I think, to leave a note for Aunt Polly that says, we've gone off to be pirates, I'm okay. Instead, he gets a great idea. We later learn the idea is to return to their own funerals and have the biggest audience he's ever had. Well, let's talk about how this adventure does end. They sneak back into town, they hide themselves in the choir loft of the church, and they wait for the funerals to begin. They wait till everyone's crying. And then they make their grand appearance. The relief and the joy overrides everything, including any anger that Aunt Polly and his cousin Mary would have had. And they say, quote, throw themselves upon their restored ones, smother them with kisses, and poured out thanksgivings, end quote. And the interesting thing about the scene is that Huck is by himself and kind of slinks away. And the sweetness in Tom is that he says to Aunt Polly, quote, someone's got to be glad to see Huck. End quote. You've got to love Tom at those moments. So Aunt Polly showers her love on Huck, too. I like that scene, too. And it also tells us Tom just wants attention. And it's not only Aunt Polly and Mrs. Harper that are glad to see the boys. Finally, Becky Thatcher is back home, and she's pretty glad to see Tom as well, isn't she? Well, Becky and Tom have had some ups and downs at this point, and she is spending some time with Alfred Temple. Alfred Temple. Hey, that was the well-dressed kid that Tom beat up early in the novel, isn't it? That's right, but he does at least secure an invitation to the picnic. The picnic, that's right. Becky Thatcher is having a picnic for all her schoolmates. She does invite Tom, and it turns into the next big adventure. Right, because Becky and Tom end up going into a nearby cave. Well, during the picnic, all the kids start out in the cave. That's one of the activities for this picnic. They're all going to go caving for a little bit. Yeah, Tom takes Becky and convinces her to explore deeper and deeper into the cave. And it's kind of a well-used cave. There's a lot of writing on the wall and candle drippings, and they realize they're lost. Lost so deep into the cave that they miss the boat back at the end of the picnic. But they're not immediately missed. They're not. Tom had convinced Becky to tell her mother she would be going somewhere else for the night. Then they could sneak off and have ice cream afterwards. So nobody missed them until church the next day. And then that whole town, just as they did when Tom and Huck and Joe Harper were drowned in the river, the whole town comes out for the rescue. 
And it gets frightening here because we know this is not Tom's intention to run away. He doesn't have a team of people and he doesn't have an easy way to get back. This is scary because they have very short candles left. They have no food. Like the murder in the graveyard, this is sort of an unplanned part of the adventure. But do the searchers find them? No. Meanwhile, their final candle has blown out. And so Tom takes it upon himself to leave Becky and find a way out. But in the process of trying to find a way out, he runs into Injun Joe, who's been hiding out in the cave. But they don't see each other at that moment. No, they don't see each other. Tom yells out, and Injun Joe takes off. Tom takes off the other way, and in the process, gets him to an opening. And Tom finds their way out, and the town is jubilant. They've never been more warmly received and have, hard to imagine, even a larger audience. Tom does love his audiences. Well, now he's also won the affection of Becky's father, who admires him so much for saving his daughter. But what happens to Injun Joe in that cave? Well, because the cave is so dangerous, Judge Thatcher locks the entrance to the cave, not knowing that Injun Joe is in there. Tom hasn't revealed that. Tom is recovering, and upon finding out, he says, But Judge... Injun Joe's in the cave. And so the entire town rushes back to the cave, opens the gates, and finds Injun Joe, who's starved to death right at the gate. And no one's too upset about that, though, are they? The town wasn't sad, but Tom had a real sense of empathy here because he had experienced what Injun Joe had experienced, being trapped in the cave. And there's actually a descriptive line that says, quote, Tom was touched, for he knew by his own experience how this wretch had suffered, end quote. Injun Joe's knife had been broken into two. He was trying to chip himself out, and there were claw marks on the door. And now, it's the death of Injun Joe in the cave that leads Tom and Huck to their last great adventure. Well, during Tom's adventure in the cave, Huck had had his own adventures too. So both of them were in bed for a while and unable to communicate with each other and share their findings. Neither one found this treasure that they had been hunting for. A treasure that they had seen Injun Joe with. So, Tom realizes, Huck, the treasure's in the cave. I know where it was. I can get back there. Now, this is a great risk because he's almost been left for dead there himself, and he's willing to go back in, secretly. They bring all the supplies they'll need. They bring food and candles and twine now. He takes Huck back through the river entrance. They find their way back to the mark where Injun Joe had left the cross. They dig and dig until they find the treasure, and these boys come home very wealthy. $12,000 in coins. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. In fact, here's how it's described by Mark Twain. Each lad had an income now that was simply prodigious. A dollar for every weekday in the year and half of the Sundays. A dollar and a quarter a week would board and lodge a boy in school in those simple old days and clothe them and wash them too for that matter. So this is a lot of money now that these boys have. Right. These kids were set up now. And in the process, Judge Thatcher really has a high opinion of Tom now. Well, not only a high opinion, he's got high aspirations for Tom. He wants to send him not only to West Point, but then after West Point, the best law school in the country. Oh, boy. But wealth doesn't rest easily on Huck's brow, does it? Poor Huck. That's tough for him. He has to get dressed and wash his face and wear shoes. Wear shoes? Go to church. It doesn't last long. Tom wants to keep him in the fold, so he convinces Huck to join the Tom Sawyer Gang of Robbers. That's his final convincing. And he tells Huck a gang of robbers are better than a gang of pirates because robbers have money. Right. Robbers need money for their tools and their clothes and everything. And he convinces them that they dress well. This is a new Tom, isn't it? A more grown-up Tom, an older Tom. It is and it isn't. It's Tom trying to keep his old kind of mischievous, irrepressible ways in a more civilized situation. 
So is he actually keeping a foot in Huck's world, or is he trying to get one of Huck's feet into his world? I just feel like he's learned how to adapt his personality or his boyish ways to let them work in a more civilized society. I get the feeling he'll still play hooky once in a while, and he'll still go to the swimming hole, but I don't think he's going to fake his own death again. Let's just say if he becomes a lawyer, there'll be days when he's convincing his associates that he's doing work when he's actually off fishing. But he'll go fishing, and he'll get someone to write that brief for him because it looks like so much fun. (laughs) Right. Or he'll take on a case that involves him having to fish. Or he might just also be a very good lawyer. He'll win all his cases because he's so convincing. So let's just say he's integrating his own personality into a more civilized world. I have to say, I think that Tom has a lot of evidence to continue his persuading and scheming because he found a huge treasure. Right, his route has been successful. That's the danger for a little boy like this. At the same time, he also has learned a lot and he recognizes that he's got to keep Huck Finn now in his new world because that's good for Huck. Huck has no parents, he has no home, he has no steady source for food and clothing and things. So he's going to use his wiles to help Huck become more of a man. And I guess that's where I see the difference in this Tom Sawyer at the end of the novel. At the beginning of the novel, all the boys wanted to be like Huck Finn. Well now, Tom wants Huck to be more like him. And he knows what will work with Huck. He says, but we can't be in the same game of robbers if you're going to be such a scoundrel. What would people say? Right. I can't have your bad name associated with my good gang. We need to be well-dressed, sophisticated robbers. We're not pirates anymore. Right. So he's still in a gang, but it's a well-dressed gang. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And obviously, guys, there's other adventures that Tom and Huck have that we weren't able to discuss here today. I can only suggest to our listeners that you go and get this book, and you read it, and you have these adventures with Tom for yourself. But before we end our conversation, Elizabeth and Phil, I want to know if you have any favorite passages or favorite quotes that we didn't get a chance to talk about. I do, and I would join you, Frank, in saying reread it. Elizabeth, you found the romantic, Tom. I did. I don't remember that at all. You can't help but enjoy the story where Becky has actually committed a crime in the classroom. And when Tom stands up and takes the heat for her... The worst beating ever administered by that teacher. And Becky says, Tom, how could you be so noble? And she's right. He's won her love forever and our hearts as well. One of the things I like a lot about this novel are the asides of Mark Twain, giving us his opinions about the church, his opinions about the state, or even with Aunt Polly. One of the things that made me laugh was Aunt Polly gets these health journals. Every month, health journals come and they've got a new remedy, a remedy for fevers, a remedy for chills. And Mark Twain sort of tweaks her a little bit by saying this. All the rot they contained about ventilation and how to go to bed and how to get up and what to eat and what to drink and how much exercise to take and what frame of mind to keep oneself in and what sort of clothing to wear were all gospel to her. And she never observed that the health journals of the current month customarily upset everything they had recommended the month before. And that's still with us today, right? Today eggs are good. Tomorrow eggs are bad. Coffee's bad. Coffee's good. It is true. (laughs) Yeah, I enjoyed the asides and the little interjections about the writer, about Twain, even sarcastically patting himself on the back. I mean, the emblematic scene of the novel for me is the whitewashing. And Twain says about Tom, quote, If he had been a great and wise philosopher like the writer of this book, (laughs) he would now have comprehended that work consists of whatever body is obliged to do, and that play consists of whatever body is not obliged to do. That's the theme through the book, really. Yeah, and closer to the end, you lose the line between Twain and Tom, especially in the cave, I think, where the tone becomes more serious. In fact, Mark Twain in his conclusion says that. 
Quote, the chronicle ends here because it's strictly the history of a boy. The story cannot go much further without becoming the history of a man. End quote. These are boys who truly enjoy being boys. And I think that'll end our conversation on the novel, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. Elizabeth and Phil, I really want to thank you guys for coming in and having this conversation with me about the book. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I enjoyed the book and the conversation. Thanks, Frank. Thanks, Frank. It was a lot of fun. Great. Thank you both very much. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Novel Conversations is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, formerly the Front Porch People. If you'd like to hear more Novel Conversations, you can go to our new network at evergreenpodcast.com or listen on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps. Novel Conversations was produced by Julie Fink and engineered by Sean Rule Hoffman. A special thanks to our executive producer, Joan Andrews, and our researchers, Kate O'Neill and Kevin Kerwin. And I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories, I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.